In this episode, some things will never change. Noah has some epic fails, and we talk whale's tales with special guest Dustin Growick. Welcome to Fax Machine. Hello, listeners. My name is Rob, and I'm here virtually alongside my co-hosts, Noah. Hello. And Em. Hi. The regular cast of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. And joining us today for a very special episode, I am pleased to welcome our guest of prehistoric proportion, Dustin Growick. Welcome, Dustin. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So Dustin is a museum consultant, science communicator, and the host of Dino 101 every Friday night. Dustin, it's a pleasure to have you. Listen, just right off the bat, I need to let everyone know you cannot tell any dinosaurs I'm doing this. The story I'm telling tonight Ooh. does not have to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, man. I may, this may be a breach of contract with the dinosaurs. I'm not sure. But uh, as long as everyone promises this stays between us, I'm, I'm happy to tell an incredibly excited story. And I'm excited to be here to tell it. If I were to see, like, a pigeon outside, I could tell them, right? Pigeons aren't dinosaurs. Why are you doing this to me, Noah? Why are you doing this right now? <laughs> Noah, you know, you know, can I curse? Am I allowed to curse? Absolutely. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know gosh darn well, sir, that birds are dinosaurs. Uh, and so, yes, all those pigeons outside are also dinosaurs, which means... Do not tell them I am here. But I, you know, I got to say, I learned about uh, the whole uh, birds are dinosaurs thing with a very fun show that Rob mentioned you host called Dino 101 uh, in the deep recesses <laughs> of the of the pandemic uh, when we were all in New York, um, just holed up in our apartments before any sort of like going back to work with, you know, social distancing. We were just in our apartments for months at a time. Uh, I would wake up. Roughly around 11.58 a.m. every day, just groggy, totally disoriented. Um, And I would turn on your show, which at the time happened every single day for, I think, 50 straight days. Yeah, that is is fact. I'm laughing right now because... I, I just assumed, like, tired and disgruntled was your brand. I didn't realize it was because you had literally just woken up. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. no I'm actually a very pleasant person to be around, as okay. my okay. friends will agree. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that was great, man. We talked about dinosaurs for 50 days straight at noon, and it was, it was bonkers. And now we do it on Friday nights for adults only. Adults only. And that's important because the show... Uh, this past year was was, I mean, tons of kids were at it, and like people from all over the world. Yeah. It was amazing. It was it was that was one of the coolest things. It's like I'm just gonna start talking about dinosaurs on Zoom every day because, uh, as a science communicator, one of my biggest like people ask me like, what do you do to become a good science communicator? Just like be doing the thing you want to be doing, even at the smallest little bits and iterations. Like if you want to be nerding out and talking about dinosaurs and get paid to do it, like you got to be doing that. You got to be in the game every day, even on the small level. And it was great to be able to like build a community and have fun and nerd out with a bunch of other adult kid family parent dinosaur (laughs) lovers for 50 straight days uh in a time when like you literally couldn't leave your house so that was that was great and here we are i'm on the fax machine podcast see kids dreams can come true (laughs) you must have one hell of an agent i gotta say (laughs) 
So, so we are lucky to have Dustin for a rare non-dinosaur appearance um, to learn about, uh, I think it's fair to say, another one of your passions, which is museums. I know that you have a predilection for the prehistoric, an excitement for the extinct, and a fossilized fervor. Um, oh, nice, nice, but we're nice, gonna, nice. yeah, you know, alliter- alliteration. <laughs> Emily was key. like, "Nah." <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. They've heard better here. <laughs> but, but we're gonna play to your strengths more broadly for an entire episode about museums. Um, I'm excited because I got to research a lot of interesting museums to make the quiz. Uh, but I'm looking forward to hearing all of your facts today. So our wit will be on full display. We'll exhibit, and we'll quit it three times as <laughs> Noah M. <laughs> I like that one. That was a good one. Because nice. Noah, M, and Dustin take you down the farthest flung halls of curiously curated content to learn the history of our natural histories before finishing in a museum curated quiz. So, everybody ready? Let's do it. Sorry. All right. Noah, with no further ado, let's get your suggested donation effects. <laughs> Walking briskly by the suggested donation uh, area, I will start with my fact. This week I learned that when the founder of the Museum of Failure registered the museum's domain name, he misspelled the word museum. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas many museums feature the extraordinary, the great triumphs, or at least the profoundly influential aspects of culture and science and history, the Museum of Failure, which is located in Sweden, takes a somewhat different approach. That there can be no success without failure, and that learning is the only way to turn failure into success. So in 2016, Samuel West, who's a clinical psychologist with a PhD in organizational psychology, took a trip to Croatia and visited the Museum of Broken Relationships, uh, a different failure-themed museum. Title of my I love life now. <laughs> <laughs> there was one in LA. Do you guys, you know, there's one in LA too. It had to, yeah, there was like a, there's a, yeah, it was like a pop-up of that one in Zagreb, Croatia. Um, and the museum of failure actually was in LA for a bit too. And it's, it's moved around a bit. And one place that it was in was, uh, the, I'll, I'll get back to you later was the Dunkers culture house in Sweden. Another place it was in was uh, a festival in Paris called it was, it, it was, I don't know. It was the festival of flops. Basically. I don't want to say it in French, but, um, uh, oh, so it, please, it's moved around please say a bunch. it in French. No. Can you please say it in French? <laughs> I didn't write down the French. <laughs> oh. from, from memory. Just translate it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Just give me a second. Uh, the the quote festival of failures or the les foires festival des flop <laughs> <laughs> that was worth it <laughs> glad that i could was. i'm glad i could oblige um so basically though this is this is um he went to this this museum in Croatia called the Museum of Broken Relationships and was just inspired to take this idea of failure being constructive or even in some way like cleansing um, and apply it to something he was interested in, which was specifically why some products fail while others succeed. So he set up this museum that for a time was located in Helsingborg, Sweden's Dunkers Culture House, which is an appropriate location for the Museum of Failure because... For all of Dr. West's waxing poetic about, like, the utility of failure or whatever, this museum is basically just nonstop dunking on stupid products. That's all it is. I mean, 
I would love for there to be some sort of deeper academic goal, but it just doesn't live up to that. And I think what makes it so challenging to live up to that lofty academic goal is that some of these products are just so, so stupid and so, so <laughs> dunkable that it makes it difficult to transcend how thoroughly dunkable they are. Uh, and you end up with just exhibits that's just, it's just a, a carnival of failures. Like, I mean, you have, for example... Um, uh, because they, during the pandemic, they moved their exhibits online, so I can share some of these. Ooh. So one is a Harley Davidson perfume entitled <laughs> Hot Road. No. <laughs> Apparently it smells, it smells like the sort of warm leather motorcycle seat. The seat! <laughs> the part where your ass yeah. goes. If you bought mm. that, that would be a real asphalt. Ah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, so another one, which you may be aware of, is Olestra, the zero-calorie fat substitute that was used in foods billed as 100% satisfaction, 0% guilt, until it became known that it caused anal leakage, uh, and people experienced 100% regret. Um, another, another one was Gerber Singles, which is amazing. This is baby food for adults. Um, oh. I support a- this idea. Go ahead. And then I, I would, go ahead first. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Let me... Let me say what you know basically information i got from the museum uh and then you can tell sure. me what you think of this sure. idea so gerber imagined a world in which 20 something professionals with no time to cook could crack open a delicious jar of creamed beef while they burn the midnight oil mm-hmm. and by the way burning midnight oil was one of the side effects of olestra <laughs> <laughs> so what do y'all think about this uh, gerber singles idea is it it's just pureed food like just adult food yeah, basically, in baby I mean, form. Huh. Yeah, I think it's just sort of single serve entrees in a little, you know, a glass jar, probably, you know, of the consistency of baby food. The, the thing that got me there was the meat. Like, I feel like they already do that with little like to go like uh, like on the go or like running athlete packets, which are basically just mm. like a sugary bunch of goo. Oftentimes it's yeah. actually real fruit or they market it as real fruit. And it's like a sugar mm-hmm. bowl to give you energy while you're out and about. So like. That's what I mean. I feel like you could do an adult version of that. Now, when you say like a meat in a tube bag, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are, that's there are limits. It's, it's right. creamed beef, right? But like, basically, it's like cream. Wait a minute, what even is that? <laughs> a nice cream of beef stew. But like, otherwise, it's like a, it's like a mini smoothie. Like, I love the idea of like a tiny like smoothie on the go, like a gogurt for meat. Exactly. <laughs> oh no. Like. <laughs> Based, based on what Dustin said, I can imagine like endurance athletes being exactly. all behind this. And they're like, yeah. I got I got a meeting. I'm going to pound this ribeye steak and then just like go into the meeting. But like, I don't see it catching on in like kind of the more moderate. The so they just see sites. like Pedialyte's move and we're like, we can we can exactly. co-op that. We can do that same mm-hmm. thing. It'll work just as well. It's a thicker oh, Pedialyte. Yeah. Do you do, are y'all familiar with Pedialyte as like a hangover? Yes. yes, yeah, that's what I was oh, yeah. referencing. You, you know yeah. what they sold in crates at Beer World? Pedialyte. <laughs> <laughs> For real. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so you're, but I just want to get clear. That's the only reason I asked is that what you're suggesting is that creamed beef Gerber singles would be a hangover cure because there's nothing I want more when I wake up hungover as hell, just like wishing my life would end. And there's no better way to hasten the end of your life than one of those. There are people who swear by like raw eggs and Worcestershire sauce. Why not? You Mm. know, (laughs) don't, don't knock until you try it and somebody else try it because I'm not going to. Well, this is, I wouldn't swear by this so much as I would swear during it. Mm. Like, God damn it. <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid it would make its way into like 
breakfast, like brunch hangover drinks. So it'd be like a cream beef Bloody Mary. Oh, <laughs> oh no. It's, it's just a rare Bloody Mary. It's, it's, oh, God. Oh, God. oh my God. Yeah. I want a fruit smoothie sugar bolus and you are creaming meat, putting it in a tube and having it first thing in the morning. So now I do understand the, the failure aspect. I'm, I'm back on board. Yeah. I got it. Yeah, okay. I'm glad that we could come to some sort of agreement on uh, Gerber singles. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the name and it made me laugh all over again. So uh, the the next one is the Euro Club, which is not in fact a Paris discotheque, um, but in fact it is a tube, another tube with the vague shape of a golf club, so that you can urinate while you're hitting the links uh, and to basically <sighs> look to casual passersby like you're teeing up for a drive. So you kind of hold it in the way you like hold a golf club like 45 degrees out from me or whatever. Um, so basically, when it comes to this product, forget about your tea time. It's pee time. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you know, but... I, as a man, I hate that product Do you switch? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let me just I, say no. It's <laughs> the first time I've been asked that question. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's a static just, urination device. <laughs> I just can't imagine that actually being, like, uh, discreet. Like, it looks like a golf club to someone watching with, and they're like... They're not. They're not swinging the golf club. What's right. going well, on over actually, there? It, 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 it is suggested by the. It is suggested by the product that this may take some practice to use, uh, and it suggested that users practice in front of a mirror at home to gain confidence. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't tell whether it's using the device or just peeing in, like in front of other people at all, because that's a common thing. I mean, it seems honestly, like it's doing the opposite of what it should be doing. Like I know there are fake golf clubs that you fill with either beer or liquor or something, and then right. as it's in your bag, you mm-hmm. can look like you're like messing around trying to find the right club, but yeah. you're really like refilling your drink. Oh. Also, you're outside, yeah. like just go pee on a tree. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I don't. You're you're inventing a problem they... that doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Hence I think the they're concerned about like indecent <laughs> exposure. You know, in like well tra- well trafficked oh. areas. This is going to keep you from getting kicked out of the country club. This is your golden yes. ticket. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think honestly, you do have to carry it around after that as well. The market for this isn't really golf courses; it's pub golf because that's where you need it the most. Wait, I have a question though. You just sure. said you have to carry it around afterwards. Yeah. Why would it collect your? I assume it doesn't collect your urine. There's. Right? Like, why Whoa. would it Why would it collect it if it's on the ground already? Like, it should I, just... I assumed that it went into, like, a little reservoir at the bottom. But, yeah, but was, like, why? Shaped well, like why? No, yeah, a very good point. it was point. just open at the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a stupid Going idea to begin to with. Your but if, if, yeah. they, if they did it the way I was thinking about it, it deserved to fail. If I, It might be slightly redeeming <laughs> if they did it the way you were thinking about it. But maybe no. they didn't, and that's why it failed, and no. we should jump on that. No. Maybe uh. it's... Maybe the, the drink club <laughs> and the urine club should be combined into one. You just to make sure which shaft of the club you're like either drinking from or peeing through. <laughs> so all okay. in one. Well, it's something like, you know, Natty Light. You can't tell the difference. Right. It's fair. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just cycles. Um, so, and also, finally, one of the museum's most often written about exhibits uh, it was a line of frozen dinner entrees from Colgate, the toothpaste mm. company. Um which Naturally. purportedly, inc- yeah, right. Which purportedly <laughs> included the Colgate lasagna. Um, <laughs> Was there but how- fluoride? Like, what's the connection here? Well, that's a good question because there actually isn't <laughs> one. Um, and 
perhaps appropriately for the Museum of Failures, this is uh, an example of the museum's failure. Um, There is no evidence that Colgate ever produced or marketed frozen lasagna, and the exhibit now includes quotes from a Colgate representative who says that no such product ever existed. Um, So it, you know, it occurs to me that the Museum of Failure could have an exhibit on itself, inside which there would be a miniature exhibit of itself, and so on, nested infinitely. Um, I just think that'd be kind of cool. But as much as this museum is really just like a series of punchlines, the underlying motivation to study and learn from failure is obviously worthwhile and certainly not a concept that would be alien to us as scientists. So I hope that after we're all done giggling at exhibits about failed products such as a spray-on condom or the Microsoft Zune or... Oh, the Zune. <laughs> <laughs> that for some reason evoked like a, oh, bless their heart kind of reaction for me. <laughs> Didn't even know that was buried in there, but there it is. <laughs> The real journey was all the zooms we we found along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, and finally, lifesavers holes, which are basically donut holes, but for lifesavers. People will engage with this concept both to normalize and destigmatize failure, but also to enable us to avoid old pitfalls and make the world a better place, or possibly to finally achieve that universally shared dream of a minty lasagna in a baby food jar. (laughs) Wow. Wow. can, Can I say that I... I've used for this podcast before a book that I found in like a dollar rack at like a, a bookstore somewhere in the South and it's called worst inventions. And at least three oh, of yeah. my facts have been from this book. And I feel like it, it does as good of a job of collecting it, but I'm pretty sure one of the things you mentioned is in there. Um, is that right? Yeah. And I have to, I it's in the other room, so I don't want to run and get it, but that was, that was the book that gave us the, the plastic house, um, the, the die cycle bicycle yeah. where the two oh, wheels are side yeah. by side. And yeah, it um, yeah, do- doesn't work. If you're trying to imagine how that works, it does not. Because <laughs> it's, it's basically a wheelchair, but there's nothing that prevents you from flipping over backwards. <laughs> the wheels are really big, so you just spin in the middle. <laughs> and then, but I think there was like a counterweight, right? Didn't we talk about that? There was some sort of... Yeah. Oh, my God. Theoretically, there was, and the pedals should have kept you, but like there's... Just, yeah, the The, the prototype tests were not positive. <laughs> also, uh, I've... Uh, in science, I think you you may be familiar with the Journal of Negative Results. It was an actual mm-hmm. journal. Um, after 15 years, it was founded in like 2002. After 15 years, the Journal of Negative Results was was shut down because it was de- oh. deemed a failure. <laughs> oh, no. I thought you were going to say they published a retraction. <laughs> Tur- turns out this is actually extremely significant. <laughs> it's like repulled and republished in Nature. <laughs> This week I learned that the most lucrative art theft in history happened because a music school dropout was afraid of missing a Grateful Dead concert. Okay. Was it worth it? We can debate that. So this fact comes from A, my love for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Um, It's one of my favorite museums ever, and I've been there more than any other museum, actually, I realized the other day. Um, And it's also the site of a famous and still unsolved art heist that happened back in 1990. Um, And this also comes from my recent viewings of Netflix's seemingly burgeoning genre of foreign language heist shows. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen these, but like Lupin and Money Heist, I've been all over them lately. Um, Oh my god, same. Dude, so good. But needless to say, they've been leaving me feeling a little heisty, so (laughs) I'm here to delve into that for my fact. Um, But first, about the museum at the center of this. So, have you guys been there, first of all? No. Oh yeah, totally. You have. 
I've actually yeah, not. Yeah. I've been to hundreds of museums, and this is in my like top five. I've heard is amazing that I have not been. So oh, it's incredible. Get me yeah. incredibly pumped about it. Now I don't even tell my story. I'll just leave so and go to the museum. Beautiful. Oh my gosh, dude. Okay, well, I have a whole like description type thing for in case you guys hadn't been and for our viewers. So buckle in and let me know if by the end of this you're if it bumps from like your top five to your top one. Okay. So <laughs> to set the scene, imagine yourself wandering through the Fenway in Boston in like the middle of March. Um during which it's icy and muddy and squidgy and it's just this icky expanse um, that's made only slightly bearable because the extremely aggressive geese that usually terrorize the area, area um, still have yet to return for the spring. Like, don't mess with them. They're evil. Just regular Boston. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. But finally, you make your way out of this just generally very bleak place uh, and stumble upon a mansion styled after a Venetian Renaissance palace, completely unlike any other building around it, with lots of chimneys and a terracotta-tiled roof. Um, And then you enter it to find it filled to the brim with paintings, tapestries, fine furniture, sculptures, letters from a menagerie of writers and composers and thinkers. And objectively, it's a lot to take in, but it's also sort of fantastical um, in that as you wind your way through all the rooms, there's nary a spot on the walls or floors that lacks something curious on it. Um, And then as you settle for a moment in the courtyard, um, this warm, airy space at the center of it all, surrounded by palm fronds and tropical flowers and the gentle gurgle of fountains, you're struck by the thought that outside, it's still March in Boston, and you can't imagine how this place exists in that one. That's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It's at once chaotic, but dreamy, cluttered, but sumptuous, less a museum and more the estate of some worldly, eccentric, distant great aunt, which actually describes Isabella Stewart Gardner herself pretty well. You've painted a picture that should be hung on the walls of the Isabella Uh. Stewart Gardner. (laughs) Indeed. But I did want to talk a little bit about Isabella Stewart Gardner, uh, the namesake of the museum, because she was a pretty interesting personality. Um, So she was born to a wealthy family in New York City. Um in the 19th century, and she was well-educated, traveled, went to finishing school, typical 19th century rich people stuff. Um, And at 20, she married an also wealthy guy named Jack Gardner and moved to Boston with him. So uh, pretty early on in her marriage to Jack, um, she faced a number of personal tragedies. Their son died suddenly of pneumonia when he was two. Um, After a miscarriage, she was told by doctors that she couldn't have any more children. Her best friend died. Um, And sort of as a consequence of all of that, she just became withdrawn and depressed and self-isolating um, to the extent that her doctors suggested travel as a remedy. Again, 19th century rich people, shit. Um, and it worked. Uh, across her life, she traveled all over the world, keeping detailed scrapbooks um, and collecting art and artsy friends along the way, um, including people like John Singer Sargent and Henry James. So in Boston High Society, uh, she was known as an unpredictable, unconventional heiress slash patroness slash socialite, uh, doing stuff that freaked people out, like showing up to the Boston Symphony Orchestra, wearing a headband with the words, oh, you Red Sox, just embroidered on it. Uh, (laughs) Times, I guess, were much simpler back then, but also, go Sox. Um, (laughs) Wait, wait, was that a... Pro Red Sox or anti Red Sox? Come on. <laughs> I do like that uh, a doctor recognized that the cure to her problem 
was to leave Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Go anywhere else <laughs> and you'll feel better i promise um and even as uh more personal tragedies affected her life um including her brother-in-law's suicide which then prompted her and her husband to adopt uh his nephews um and later one of them actually committed suicide as well uh she seemed to continue to find escape in the art that she collected um along with the sort of intelligentsia company that she kept um and uh, and her and Jack's dream to build a museum for their collection um, and share it with the public. Um, which is to say, by this time, um, her collection had come to include ancient Roman, Islamic, Chinese, and Egyptian art, um, medieval religious iconography, um, and even works by Titian, Rembrandt, Vermeer, Velasquez, just lots of the masters. Um, and also worth mentioning here as a pause, um, Although she purchased her art abroad, like through a dealer, um, you know, a lot of that art was looted originally. Um, some of it she smuggled into the country. Um, so, and well, on the premise, as was a thing back then, and I guess perhaps still a bit now, um, of saving it for people to view. Um, that is to say, like, you know, some of the ideas behind collecting this art were presumptuous at best, imperialist at worst, realistically both. Hashtag 19th century rich people shit, but necessary caveat to include here. So as I mentioned, uh, Isabella and Jack had this dream to build a museum, um, and then suddenly he passed away. Um, and even after that, she continued chasing after this dream, uh, working closely with an architect um, in the design and construction of the Italianate mansion that would become the museum, taking up residence in its top floor, personally arranging the artwork, planning out the galleries. Um, and after opening it to the public in 1903, she spent the rest of her life organizing lectures, performances, and concerts, creating a space that perfectly aligned with her vision for it, um, to share and celebrate art and knowledge, and even horticulture. So... I guess, appropriate that it's the Gardner Museum um, yeah, in totally. all of its forms. <laughs> and her determination to preserve her life's work um, in this museum uh, even persists after her death. So in her will, she expressed the intent that the museum be preserved um, from the will itself for the education and enjoyment of the public forever, um, and also included some very strict conditions for how her museum should be preserved, namely saying that nothing in it can be sold or taken away or moved. Otherwise, the collection and museum must be turned over to Harvard. And let's face it, they have enough, so let's not do that. Um, but this very particular stipulation that the museum itself must remain unchanged from the way that she left it at the time that she died. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, she was Sorry. very particular. <laughs> but that's the reason why, when you visit the museum, you'll find little, like, incidental relics alongside the intentional ones, like broken thermometers and, like, <laughs> kind of peeling wallpaper and just stuff that, like, can't be altered because she said so. Um, also, it's also why in 2009, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts had to weigh in on whether a new expansion could be constructed to add gallery space um, and ultimately alleviate foot traffic um, that was hastening the deterioration of the original museum. Um, the house was not built to accommodate the amount of visitors that now show up yearly. And fortunately, um, the court did rule that they could build a building, which is great. It's gorgeous and awesome and has gallery and performance spaces and just, it was a good decision. Um, and it's also why when you visit, you'll see a bunch of eerie empty frames mounted to the walls of the museum because the frames themselves can't be removed even though the art that they once held was famously in 1990. 
And now we get to the heist. So There's a heist? Oh, yeah. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot there was a heist. I, I warned you this would be long, and I was very enthusiastic to tell it. So. But yes, we're at the heist, the moment we've all been waiting for. So it happened in the early hours of Sunday, March 18th, 1990. Two men dressed as police officers, spoiler, they were not, pushed the buzzer um, to be let into the museum uh, on the premise they'd gotten word of a disturbance in the area. So the security guard on duty um, was Rick Abath, a recent Berkeley College of Music dropout who let the officers in um, and at their request called his co-worker on duty to come down as well and then stepped away from his desk, which was like the turning point that basically made all of this happen. Um, because at that desk was the panic button that he could use to alert the real police. His motivation for doing so um, was because one of the guys, one of the fake police officers, said that Rick looked familiar and speculated whether there was a warrant out for his arrest. And Rick was eager to dissuade these officers from that suspicion because, according to an NPR article describing a 2015 interview with a bath, um, when this came out many years later, um, in quotes, he was worried that if he was arrested on a weekend night, and this was Sunday morning, he would be in court until Monday, and he knew that he had tickets to that night's Grateful Dead concert in Hartford, and he didn't want to miss it by being in jail. You can imagine him getting tied up, and he's like, guys, seriously, tonight? Oh, Grateful Dead are in town tomorrow. <laughs> I would imagine that people who are into the Grateful Dead probably go to Grateful Dead concerts multiple times a week. Like, well, that's so, their thing, right? Well, so here's the kicker. <laughs> Speaking of which, so he did, even after, like, a few hours later, like, getting found by the real police and untied and, like, released, did still go to the concert that same mm-hmm. night in Hartford and actually wanted to go again to see the dead on Monday night for their next concert in Hartford, but then saw all the headlines about the heist and was like, it might not look so good to just like be out of state for consecutive days after I like, oh, was I at the scene of a heist. <laughs> I so guess I'll come back like, and not see them two nights in a row. <laughs> not even for like the optics of him having been a security guard who failed, but for the opt like for make for it, the fact that it looked like he might have been a yeah, that he right. was there and then just escaped right. state lines <laughs> there, to go see the Grateful <laughs> Dead. If there's any idea that you might be a flight risk or somehow uh, attached to this this crime and your choice to go is to Hartford, <laughs> like of all the places <laughs> you could go to, you pick Hartford, you deserve to be in jail. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> it, Hartford be the Pirate's Cove of New England. <laughs> 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 in the vein of uh, shitting on New England cities, there's not much going on in Hartford, so I feel like he could actually keep a low profile there and be okay. Wait as we one day learn that he like was actually going to underwrite the art that he had stolen and see how much insurance money he could get for it. <laughs> <laughs> because of the Hartford insurance yeah. thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, is a, that is a great just standalone fact, is that Hartford is like one of the insurance capital of America or something. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get to yeah, say yeah. it a lot, so let's take the opportunity to say there it There we today. go. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we can, we do, you know? <laughs> can't let that lie. So anyways, the heist itself uh, took place over what, honestly, I would consider a leisurely 81 minutes. So then again, the two guards were tied up, so I guess they could take their time. Uh, the thieves over that time basically swept through the museum and then hightailed it out with 13 items from the collection, including works by Vermeer, Rembrandt, and Degas, collectively worth $500 million um, for an art heist that is 
the most that is the largest art heist ever like value wow. valued um, heist takes Nice, nice. That's very good. Um, Oh, but yeah, but as I mentioned at the top, uh, the crime remains unsolved, even though there have been all sorts of, like, leads, a lot of them related to, like, the Boston mob scene and mafia the FBI have followed up on over the years. Um, There's all sorts of, like, podcasts and shows and stuff you can watch to find out about that. It's still an open and, like, pretty interesting case. Um, But uh, importantly to mention, given that it is still open uh the museum is offering a 10 million dollar reward for any information about the theft so dear listeners if you have any contact collect and just remember where you heard about that 10 million dollar reward because you know this podcast um it takes some time we put a lot of work into it and you know we haven't started a patreon but i mean i mean we could so just just think of us. One wealthy kindly, donor. Please. Just one wealthy donor. That's all. Yeah. Just one. That's all we need. You can get in the fax machine gold circle. Be our Isabella Stewart Gardner. <laughs> yeah, if Just you're listening. Just one patron. <laughs> um, but as a little postscript, so as tragic as these losses were, um, I mean, in particular with the Vermeers, there are only 34 Vermeer paintings that are known to exist. So to lose any of those um, is really you know, considerable loss Um, in a way that sort of speaks to the resiliency of the museum and perhaps the stubbornness of its founder, the empty frames and what they symbolize, um, you know, in the way of absence and remembering and hopes for return have actually inspired more art. Um, So uh, the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum was actually one of the last museums that I visited um, in the before times. And at the time that I was there um, in one of the rooms that had the most empty frames from the heist. Um, they had a stand with information about a project by a former artist in residence named Sophie Caillé. Um, so she actually was their first artist in residence and began her tenure shortly after the theft in 1990. Um, and for her projects, she interviewed visitors and staff about what they remembered about the artwork that disappeared, um, and then combined texts and photography from these interviews in an exhibit that explored themes of absence and memory, um, and the emotions that people retain, um, from the experience of art. She actually did it again in 2013, um, and it was actually kind of a neat redo in that by that point, the frames had been somewhat refurbished. So when you see them now, um, they actually have wallpaper inside of them that matches that surrounding them. So it almost Mm. looks a little bit intentional, Um, and enough time has passed that there are plenty of people who visit and don't actually know the heist story. So in these interviews, she was asking people like what they thought about the frames, and there are plenty that thought it was some kind of intentional choice. Um, or or maybe some people who left Yelp reviews that were just like, hmm, kind of shit museum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't have enough artwork just, for all of it. They really wanted to show off the wallpaper. I don't know why. Um, I mean, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but in looking further, I noticed that actually quite a few previous artists and residents um, at ISGM or ISGM um, have, <laughs> have derived inspiration um, and or worked those empty frames into their own work while they're at the museum. Um, and they've even left imprints on the work of other artists, uh, like jazz trumpeter Jason Palmer. Um, so he was studying nearby the New England Conservatory of Music when the heist happened, um, and recently composed an album of 12 pieces, each one dedicated to one of the stolen works, uh, which he released last year in commemoration of the 30th anniversary. Um, so all of this is to say that in thinking about this episode and that we'd be talking about museums, um, 
you know, as we've all felt, um, I kind of had some of those feelings dredge up from the early pandemic times of just like, oh, I miss museums um, as places to retreat to and kind of escape reality and seek distraction or solace. And then they were shuttered because of reality. And it was like, oh, that's gone. But anyways, I just thought it was kind of interesting that uh, even though, you know, obviously the museum has been shaped by this heist and the loss of art, the idea that like the sort of permanence of these empty frames and the memory of that occurrence has actually generated more art. Um, Yeah. And I don't know. It's just kind of, I think, a nice story of like life goes on, art goes on. And even when it's even when it's taken away, it's still there for people to find solace in um and inspiration from um oh and as like a dumb final side note uh (laughs) in looking into this i also saw that in january of 2021 so a few months ago um the isgm made another heist hall of fame uh distinction as being the site of possibly the first reverse heist if you were to call it one (laughs) um basically in january someone broke in again um like smashed a glass door didn't steal anything but rather chucked a painting into the museum that they had stolen from a gallery down the street a few days prior so I don't know if that was some kind of like trying to balance out the universe, but yeah, some guy so threw a weird. painting into the museum and then so ran off. Weird. Do we know whether or not it was like one of the original stolen paintings? No, like, no, it definitely it was like vig- vigilante. Vigilantes are out there trying to reclaim the the if only, art. That would have been, I think, a much bigger story. But it was just kind of like never, Sherman. I have never okay. thought of. <laughs> The idea of stealing something from one museum and then breaking it and putting it in another museum is incredible. Can you imagine if someone stole, honestly, like, imagine if someone stole, like, like uh, an Okapi, the taxidermied Okapi from the American Museum of Natural History, went across the park, and then put it on top of, like, the Temple of Dendur and the Met? Like, I just, that is, I love that. I want to hang out with that person. That's such a good idea. Just to say, if, if that happens, we are officially all fucked. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> So my fact is that we only very recently learned how the fuck whales evolve. So I don't know. Okay. It, hmm. very, like very recently. So like quick like evolutionary history of, of the planet lesson. So like uh, everything right. that lives on land at one point lived in water. Like life first started evolving in water. And then around 400, 500 million years ago, something crawled up onto land and now we have to pay taxes. So screw that guy. <laughs> right. But right. Rude. Yeah. But what's crazy is about 50 million years ago, um, animals that I can only kind of describe as like a, a dog, bear, pig type of situation started. <laughs> of course, the right. dog, bear, pig. Yes. Half knows. dog, half bear, half, half, bear, bear. half pig. <laughs> okay. Well, right. Oh well, my. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like a pie chart. You're all smashed in there. Well, I'm trying to paint a picture of this weird animal that decided... Uh, it was going to start really like exploiting what we call like riparian environments, like water, like land and mm-hmm. water, like hunting in the water, but living on land. Um, and over time evolved into being all the different types of cetaceans that we see today. And cetaceans include whales as well as dolphins, right? And this was kind of like hypothesized that whales had evolved from some sort of land-based thing at some point. Mainly because like if you think about the way that whales and dolphins move, 
they're kind of doing like a undulating up and down thing, which is rem relatively reminiscent of like your legs running forward and back versus right. if you think about like they're, a fish oh. or a shark, it's going side to side with its fins, like pushing. Yeah. And so they're kind of doing like the worm. Exactly. Exactly. They're doing mm. the worm because that's a vestige of living on land where legs move uh, forward and back rather than side to side like, like a right. fish or shark. But it wasn't until like incredibly recently that we found an animal called Pacacetus, which translates to Pakistan whale, which again looked like the bear dog pig situation. And then it wasn't even until more recently that we found a new another uh, early whale. We call them early whales or basal whales. That's called um, Ambulocetus, and Ambulocetus literally means walking whale. Walking, okay, yeah. yeah, awesome. So Whoa. I'm gonna just I'm gonna ask you guys. How recently do you think that we actually found Ambulocetus? How recently did we find it? How how recently do we actually find fossil evidence that really put together these pieces of what we had already thought was the evolutionary, the bonkers evolutionary history of whales? I remember at some point when I was like a little kid, so let's just say in the 90s, I remember seeing a video about... Uh, or some sort of maybe educational yeah. nature show or something about how whales had sort of come from... You know, I remember them describing it as wolf-like, you know, sort of like wolf ancestors. So yeah, yeah. maybe the yeah, dog yeah. part of the, um, and so it had to be at least as far back as the nineties. Well, I don't know exactly yeah. when. So there were like certain species here and there. They're like, oh, this looks like an early whale. Like some we'd found right. way back in the eighteen thirties. But it, like as we started really piece together what that tree looked like, Pacacetus wasn't even found till the eighties. Ambulocetus wasn't wow. found until nineteen ninety four. And I just wow. love that because, like, we think of, like, paleontology literally as, like, extinct dead science. But, like, we're finding things relatively recently. Yeah. We still are, especially in dinosaur science. I know we're not supposed to talk about dinosaurs. Don't tell them. But, like, <laughs> we're finding... <laughs> don't tell them. Hey, don't put on us. Dinosaurs. Don't tell them. We're finding even, dinosaurs even, like, I all the time. When I, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, like, I, I don't... Like, I remember Archaeopteryx was yeah. like, I don't know how, I don't have any sense of, like, how true this was and I, I or how recent it was, but I remember in, like, certainly, like, the mid-90s that, like, when I would go to, like, the Houston Museum of Natural History, that Archaeopteryx was talked about like it was this big deal that was, like, it felt recent and felt current. I don't know yeah. when Archaeopteryx was discovered, but I, I certainly, I feel like some of the, like, biggest dinosaur related discoveries that people can like totally name and talk about even like now are quite recent i mean yeah we're, the, the rate at which we are finding dinosaurs i always find a way to swing it back to dinosaurs uh, <laughs> wow. the rate at which we are finding dinosaurs i, I got him guys I got him yeah right bait and switch um no we're finding so many we're finding them in a very uh, incredible clip and we're finding them in parts of the world that just haven't been explored really because of the majority of time like dinosaur science has been a thing we've been looking in the american mm. and canadian rockies primarily there's been some stuff in like like Mongolia as well, but like in the last 10, 15 years, amazing fossils out of like China, out of Argentina, out of Morocco, South Africa, Egypt. So we're in like, we're in a heyday for finding dinosaur fossils. And I'm really excited to see like how we're finding new, uh, not only finding new specimens, but like finding new, figure out new techniques to figure out what colors they were, like which ones had feathers, what colors mm. those feathers were. I mean, Spinosaurus, was it a newt? Was it a stork? Did it live in water? Did it live on land? Like, we, we don't, like, I don't know. I'm excited. I'm excited about all this stuff that we don't know in paleontology. But we're not here to talk about dinosaurs. We're here to talk about whales. <laughs> I mean, you say that, mm. I, but what have we been doing? Well, dinosaurs are a gateway <laughs> drug to science. And so that's... That's true. <laughs> Okay, so where were we? We were talking about whales. We learned very, very... I learned very recently 
that we actually had concrete evidence for like what we would think of as an evolutionary tree for whale evolution. And this is all to say that like, not only is it interesting to me that we recently found out or figured out really like with, without a doubt, the lineage of whales, but the fact that like we right now, human beings, the, the incredible improbability that we share time and space with the largest animal that's ever lived on this planet ever is bonkers. And so, pop quiz, uh, Emily, do you know what, I don't know why, listen, once a science teacher, always a science teacher, I'm sorry. Emily, do you <laughs> okay. know what, which species of whale currently alive today is the largest animal to have ever graced the face of the earth? The blue whale? It is the blue whale, uh, which bing, is crazy. <laughs> Some long-necked dinosaurs uh, were a little bit longer, but as far as weight and girth goes, at about like 200 tons and about 200 tons, about twice as big as any dinosaur we've ever known. Uh, so cool. We're talking about whales. Obviously, I'm going to mention dinosaurs, but what does this have to do with the museums? Well, it just so happens that the largest animal to ever live is hanging from the ceiling at the greatest museum to ever exist, the American Museum of Natural History <laughs> in New York City. Now, I assume that many people listening right now have been to the American Museum of Natural History. They've been to the, uh, the Hall of Ocean Life. And if so, you can't miss it because it's... Again, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it's the largest animal's ever lived. And it's hanging from the ceiling, right? So you go into this hall and you're standing under what I just mentioned was 200 tons. It's about 122 feet long, which sounds kind of scary at first until you recognize that the whale hanging at the American Museum of Natural History is not an actual taxidermied blue whale because most of the stuff in not just this room, but like any uh, museum that has aquatic animals and aquatic life, those are usually not taxidermied because... Aquatic life, like, you can't preserve it the way you can mammals that live on land or birds, just because, like, it's so used to moisture that you can kind of, like, taxidermy using weird different uh, strategies and methodologies, but, like, it just starts cracking and drying out after a few years, and then it doesn't look real, and, like, the point is for it uh. to look real. So, in fact, everything in the Hall of Ocean Life is a model, save for, I'm pretty sure, the polar bear that's down there, sir, but everything else mm. is, is a is a model like the dolphins uh, and this whale that you see hanging from the ceiling. But that doesn't mean it's not, like, not heavy. Uh, in fact, it is mm -hmm. about 21,000 pounds, and it's hollow, and it's fiberglass. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so it hasn't always wow. looked like this. But like, now when you go and see it, it's blue. There are these spots on the other side. There's these, like, stripes on the other side. Originally, though, this was based off of a dead female blue whale that washed up on the coast of Argentina, like, way back in the 20s. Um, because, like, we weren't, like, we didn't have underwater camera technology. We weren't really mm. seeing blue whales in the wild so well. So originally this was based off of a dead bloated zombie whale on the beach, basically. So originally <laughs> the hung whale was gray bloated and the eyeballs were popping out. Right. Ooh. So over, Ooh. over the last couple, or I guess about a couple decades at this point, they pushed the eyeballs back in, give it in this nice blue color, put the stripes and spots in the bottom. <laughs> and here's your next mission. Seek and find next time you're at the museum. If you stand under it and you look up, in about the midsection, two-thirds of the way from the, the tip down to the tail, you'll see kind of like a little spot, uh, well, big spot, I'm throwing up air quotes, big spot, because mammals, whales are also mammals. No, I don't know why I've turned this into a pop quiz, but you know what spot that might be if we're also mammals? Right in the middle of their body. Memory! No, not their boobs, not their whale boobs. <laughs> oh, umbilical there cord. The there's a belly button. The goddamn, oh, belly button. The goddamn whale has a belly button. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I sorry. I was thinking about because the, the whale nipples are interesting as well. Are they? And I was so I was just <laughs> thinking about how there's and there's and, good and blind I'll, date look. I'll say it proudly. <laughs> yeah, look, I I'm not afraid to say it. I think whale 
nipples are interesting. Yeah. And they okay. are. And okay. it's because okay. they stand don't have truth, like Noah. Nip- it's okay. Listen, <laughs> I will listen, I will stand on the peak of the tallest mountain and say to anyone who will listen that the whale nipple is an extraordinary nipple. And let me tell you why. And it's because they aren't like nipples per se. They're sort of like these like slits that um, and, and then their milk is sort of this like viscous substance because you wouldn't want it to like diffuse away in water. Mm-hmm. And so they, mm-hmm. they just kind of like the baby whales calves, I guess. Right. Yeah. They just kind of go up mm-hmm. and get this sort of very, I think it's very high fat, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. very viscous substance um, that is like adapted to their environment. And I think that is worthy of a lengthy diversion about how well nipples of whales are adapted to their environment and i will fight anyone (laughs) who dares to deny that okay i'm convinced (laughs) i i'm happy to just heard that so thank you Noah. oh boy no it's when you describe the nipple as like long like a long slit now it's like i'm thinking of like two butt cracks on its chest like not okay (laughs) Okay. All right. Ask me again. Ask me again. What What was I about to? What was I saying? Including, and here's a pop quiz for you, Emily or Noah, or anyone who wants to take this. They added a d- detail that we share with the largest animals ever lived because we are all mammals. A detail about like mm. halfway down their body, the midsection, just a little kind of like spot. Any, any guesses? Emily, do you know? Any because I certainly know? don't. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not referring to nipples. <laughs> uh, could it be a a belly button? It is, in fact, a belly button, which is the cutest touch. I love that they went back. Oh, yeah, so I love that they went back and added a belly button to make it more realistic, which is which is great. That being said, if you are under the whale looking up at its belly button, maybe you're at like a night at the museum sleepover type of situation, which you can do. There's like there's a kids one, but there's also an adult one, by the way. Adult like what? Yeah, it's yeah. like six hundred bucks though. It's very expensive. Um, and I've heard from a couple different guards that like their main job really during these is to just, <laughs> yeah, you already know where this is going is to make sure people aren't like sneaking out to have sex in different parts of the museum. But to be fair, if I'm spending $600 to spend the night at the museum, I, well, actually now what hall would I want to bone in? That is a very important question. I have not considered. <laughs> We're going to make this a Twitter poll oh, yeah. for this episode. Yeah, that's... Yeah. that's Absolutely. All right. If you go up to the second story in the Hall of Ocean Life, there's actually two floors. If you go up to the second floor, I think you get a good, like, panoramic, full-length view of the whale. Now, how this thing is actually hung is a great story in of itself, because when this was mounted in the 1960s, it was done by a man named Lyle Barton. He was a curator of the Hall of Ocean Life. And Lyle was like, yo, listen, I've been to natural history museums before. I've seen whales at natural history museums. They're either, like, a straight skeleton on the floor... Sometimes even flush them out, but it's just like kind of a straight, like slinkied out whale. I want to make this look way more realistic. I want to flesh it out. I want to make it look like it had just breached for air and started to die back down. So if you're looking at the whale in like panoramic view, it almost looks like a check mark, like an upside down check mark with the like the right mm-hmm. angle being the only thing that's touching the ceiling. And you'll notice on that ceiling, there's these iron beams that like crisscross the, the roof. And those are actually acting as the scaffolding for all the iron beams that hold up this 21,000 pound whale. Because it's only attached to that one spot where just behind the dorsal fin, the back hip, uh, like the hips of the whale hit the ceiling. There is a pole that comes out of those iron beams. Another iron beam comes out of the uh, ceiling right there and then splits. So you have an iron beam that goes the length of basically like two thirds of the way back all the way to its uh, tip of its Mm. nose and then towards the backside. It's kind of like hanging there as like a counterbalance, which 
Is oh, and by the way, that iron beam that comes out of the whale attaches to the next building. <laughs> by the way, the, yeah, wow. the museum like is levers. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. Like it's a pretty incredible feat of engineering. Like the phrase that yeah. just whenever I'm looking at it, the phrase in my mind is just structural integrity, structural integrity. Stru-. Like, is this gonna work? <laughs> yeah, the museum's twenty-seven. Is this, buildings. Is this a load? Is this a load-bearing whale? <laughs> is it is <laughs> whale load-bared? Yeah, so uh, it's attached to the ceiling there, which, again, is a pretty ingenious idea. But uh, our friend Lyle was not entirely certain this was going to be structurally sound. And this is a 100% true story. For the last week before the big unveiling to the museum trustees, like this new hall, the new whale hanging from the ceiling, Lyle Barton had a wooden stick cut that measured the exact distance from the tip of the whale's nose to the floor. So if you're in this hall, the tip of the whale's nose is about 15 feet up. Like, you got to be basketball player NBA to be able to jump up and touch it um but it's about 15 feet so he had a wooden stick cut that measured the tip from the tip of his nose to the floor and every morning the first thing he would do that last week was come in and he'd put the stick there between the tip of the whale's nose and the floor because he was wanting to make sure like if it fits snugly the whale wasn't sagging at all right he wasn't afraid that it was just gonna yeah. like, rip out of the ceiling he thought maybe the weight was gonna bend the iron it's a really weird way to test it his crew thought this was a weird way to test it as well so they decided to prank him so after he left work each day that week, they would dip the wooden stick in glue and just a little bit of <laughs> sawdust, right? So if you keep adding sawdust, the stick gets incrementally longer each day. Friday eventually crumbs around. He comes in the morning, tries to put the stick there, and it won't fit. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill everyone. Uh, <laughs> I'm ruined, no. But then his crew is like, we're, don't worry about it. We're pranking you. No big deal. And he's like, this is great. Thank you for pranking me because I'm going to use this same prank on the trustees. So they have museum <laughs> events. They have, yeah, yeah. They have huge galas and events in this room all the time. Like, I don't know how much it costs, but I need to look into if I want to throw a party in that room under the well, how much it would cost to rent. You guys are coming to the party, right? Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Because the whale's still there. Okay, so, backtrack. Uh, yeah, so, they're having the party, uh, and it looks like to all the nice people, like the big museum, big wigs, and they're, the trustees, their finest attire, banquet tables on the whale, everyone's all dressed up. See, I imagine they're in monocles, because it's the 60s. I don't know why. Maybe not. <laughs> Obviously. They sure, came right from not? the opera, and now they're here for the whale. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thank you. If there's a single piece of, uh, like, accoutrement that is associated with the 60s. It is the monocle. <laughs> Listen, I am... It's just the mon... Like, if you look at pictures of, like, classic Woodstock, what you're going to see is just a lot of people <laughs> with peace signs. You know, Jimi Hendrix with a monocle. Um, Janis Joplin, of course, monocled. Um, this is a different class. See- this is a different societal class, <laughs> Noah. These are people who think they are the Monopoly man. They've got monocles. (laughs) They've got ridiculous. Go either way. (laughs) So, all right. So, all these maybe monocled people, maybe not, are under the whale. It looks like now I'm picturing a whale with a monocle. That is not. (laughs) That would be an amazing prank. Upstart caviar. I have to say, I'm now expecting this future party to feature a monocle on the whale. Oh, definitely. Really oh, glass the place up. Did Charlie Charlie the Tuna have a monocle, or he had like full thick rim glasses? He Just did. Like... He had a Buddy Holly getup. Yeah, from what I recall, okay. and like the hat, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Wrong about the Starkist guy, right? Was it Star? Yeah, yeah, Starkist, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Not Chicken of the Sea because there are no Chicken of the Sea. Anyway, 
Right. Right? Chickens are dinosaurs, Dustin. Chickens are dinosaurs. So there are no chickens of the sea because one of the really for me the reason why dinosaurs were able to be so successful is because they completely abandoned life in yeah. water and live solely on yeah. land. That's why every dinosaur ever has their legs straight down under them so they can move quickly and efficiently mm-hmm. on land. Versus the thing about an alligator, or crocodile, still spend some time in water. Land legs spread up the side makes sense for moving water side to side. Dinosaurs are like screw right. that, we're going on land to take over. Look at me now, and by me I right. mean it. counterpoint. Yeah. Whales also on land were like, fuck this, we're going back. Who's still around? That's true. It's mm. true. It's true. And, and Dustin, so that's <laughs> the, your, your description right there, that's why plesiosaurs aren't dinosaurs, right? Exactly. No dinosaur ever. Well, And also why Spinosaurus isn't a dinosaur. Okay. All right. Because Spinosaurus <laughs> is a dinosaur. We just have no, it's just really weird and enigmatic. Maybe it spent time hunting in water. We don't know. But takeaway here is hips don't lie. The hips, exactly. It's all about the hip. Where were we? Potentially monocled is a good name for a band. But also what was happening at this party when they unveiled the whale, Lyle Barton, he was there. He's ready to show off his whale hanging from the ceiling. But it looked like the stick, the wooden stick, was an integral part of the support system. So Lyle's up at the front of the room giving a speech. Mid-speech, he takes a bottle of champagne, knocks the stick out. Supposedly, <laughs> according to lore, people were gasping and like fainting <gasps> and like diving under their tables, which makes very little sense because like a, a table is not going to protect you from 21,000 pounds falling from the ceiling. But, you know, you do you. But clearly it hung and it's been hanging ever since, which is incredible, again, for the largest animal to ever live. Like their heart is the size of a Corolla. Their eyeball is the size of a basketball. I should have mentioned this is a female blue whale. By the way, uh, male did okay, good because male blue whales at about Mm. eight to twelve feet long have the largest penises in the animal kingdom. But Mm -hmm. you could still say she's pretty well hung (laughs) from from the ceiling. So that brings us to the last section of today's show. That is our museum quiz. So today's quiz is eight questions about interesting or outstanding museums from all around the world. Some of the things they either have or the stories behind them. So we're gonna listen, or we're gonna look into these eight exceptional exhibits. So question number one: What Olympic host city has the most museums of any city in the world, with at least 150 recorded museums in 2015? Well, it, it does help a little tiny well. bit to know that as of 2015, so it cuts off any subsequent Olympic host cities. Yeah. <laughs> so not Rio. Right. <laughs> Or, well, yeah. That's that's it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Not Tokyo, RIP. And a lot of everybody else. Okay. Um... And so I can give you some of the the museums that are there. Sure. If that, unless yeah. I, I think I have an idea, but do you, you want to give us some clues? Sure. Yeah. So some of the 150 museums are the Cartoon Museum, the Penn Museum, and the Chile and Tequila Museum. That's well, a, I know that museum. Mexico City hosted an Olympics. Is it Mexico City? It is Mexico City. Cool. Hey! Nicely nice. done. That's neat. Yeah. So uh, it was just the tequila part. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it's interesting because that is the uh, a museum about the nation of Chile and tequila. Yeah. It's the Chile and oh. Tequila Museum. It's the awesome. what? Yes. Wait. Same museum. What? <laughs> I don't know. Why not? Why not? But Mexico City, uh, it is famous, has 150 museums, which is uh, considerably more uh, than the next city. New York, I think, uh, ranks somewhere between 85 and 100, depending on how you how you count what lists uh. you look at. Um, most famously might be things like the Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera collection in Casa Azul, 
Um, there's the the main plaza in Mexico City, which is surrounded by museums, is a 57,000 square foot plaza, and it is like a tourist destination uh, and a real like uh, like a, a big cultural exchange site. And so uh, I could go on about some of the other museums. One that stood out to me is actually not even a museum, but even their uh, the largest family run taco business in Mexico City, El Fogoncito. Um, they have uh, on their like in their stores and in their carts, they trace the history of tacos from the Middle East to Mexico City. So even <laughs> nice. even the taco wow. stand is a museum. That's cool. <laughs> Question number two. Considered the finest medical museum in the U.S. and perhaps the world, what museum features Soap Lady, a human skull collection, <laughs> the conjoined liver of Chang and Eng, John Wilkes Booth's vertebra? You, I believe... You are speaking of Philadelphia's own Mütter Museum. That it yeah, is. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name. Nice. Okay, yeah. nice. So yeah, that's a great. That's a great. But they also have like a giant colon. <laughs> like someone didn't poop for like four years or something, and it's like a giant. <laughs> it's it's like it's the size of a human. Like it's there's a colon. It's like your best friend. Your arm is around it. It's wild. It's huge. So the Mütter Museum is is fascinating, as we've already kind of mentioned. Um, their tagline, which I love and kind of want to adopt, is. Are you ready to be disturbingly informed? It's <laughs> so, <laughs> so aggressive. Oh, man, it's so, so unnecessarily good. aggressive. I love it though. And it is it's like an almost questionable collection of, of human samples, a lot of really cool old medical equipment. There's um I know at, at Wild Cornell there's actually one of the old conference rooms has a very small, like one bookcase kind of medical museum of old microscopes and old surgical supplies. One last thing on the Mütter Museum is in November 2019. Do you want to guess the name of the exhibit that they opened? The yeah, next yeah. plague. Pandemic. It was called. It was called "Going Viral: Infection Through the Ages." <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Nice. Hell yeah. Oh, all right. Question number three: uh, What American museum location has a rooftop garden, happy hour every Thursday pre-COVID, and an albino alligator named Claude? Ooh, it sounds awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, I know. <sighs> Ooh, okay. Uh, All right. I believe you're referring to the California Academy of Sciences. Yes. In San that Francisco. That place oh, is Oh, shit, I've been yeah. there. It is amazing, yeah. yeah. In, oh. in, in the building Park. itself, like, breathes and lives. I'm throwing up air quotes. Mm-hmm. Because they have that living roof, and, like, everything is... Uh, like monitored and controlled the humidity the temperature inside as well so like the the roof and the windows in it will open and close to allow more sunlight or humidity or like just temperature in and out which is pretty crazy that like it regulates itself just bonkers it's like a living yeah yeah. and the roof they put speaking of whales people when they get a hold of like whale skeletons that have washed up on shore someone finds it they often will put them on that roof to dry and bleach in the sun so on their roof you're having cocktails in a garden and there's just a whale skeleton baking in the sun right there it's it's pretty cool pretty cool that's lit it is it was one of my favorite science destinations i've ever visited um claude the alligator is like um Right when you walk in, he's like in the back main lobby and he kind of is the entrance to the aquarium that is like the basement of this place has these just amazing uh, aquaria exhibits. There's an earthquake simulator. There's a butterfly garden. Just there's everything in this place. So California Academy of Sciences, uh, well worth the trip uh, and a day. Where is it? Where is it in California? San Francisco. I think it's it's in Golden Gate Park, right? Or one of the parks. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't remember okay. if this is this fact check this later, listeners. But I'm pretty sure at some point uh, a kid's shoe fell into Claude's enclosure and it ate it, and then they had to have surgery. They gave Claude surgery to remove the shoe. Ooh. Oh no! I I, made, I don't I know. Think. Oh, I'm like sixty seventy percent sure that's real. Hmm. Was the shoe a croc? I'm I'm out. I'm done. I'm <laughs> we lost the guest. We we seek to break every guest. <laughs> you lasted longer oh, than funny. most. <laughs> so question number four. In Austin, Minnesota, not far from the factory where it is produced, a museum details the history of what famous canned product? Yeah. Can you repeat that one more time? Yeah. So in Austin, Minnesota <clears throat> I'll try that again. In can, Austin, can Minnesota. Can you repeat it one more time? <laughs> <laughs> in Austin, Minnesota, Ooh. not far from the factory where it is produced, a museum details Campbell's the history of what soup. famous canned product. <laughs> so uh, the two hints I'll give you is that one sign in the museum reads, please do not eat the exhibits. And another <laughs> details how the main uh, location that it is shipped is Hawaii. Oh, is spam. it spam? It is spam. Nice. All right. So, yeah, the Spam Factory is in Austin, Minnesota. I, I had no idea that that was made in Minnesota. Neither did I. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That I And am. then Hawaii is the by far the, the, number right. one, the number one consumer of Spam, not per capita, like total. They eat so much Spam in Hawaii. You go to the grocery stores in Hawaii and there's like a Spam aisle with like varieties of Spam and like different choices of Spam. <laughs> no, there were it's varieties. Wild. Wow. What, a, what <laughs> yeah. are the kinds of Spam? You can get them like kind of uh, with different flavorings, uh, pineapple, chives, like all these like different things that get oh. mixed in, um, different preparations. It all looks exactly the same, but to the discerning spam <laughs> consumer, I'm sure they're all mm, very different. I wouldn't have the palate to. Uh, you know, if you made it, if you made it out of an early whale, you could call it. Oh man! <laughs> you could call it spambulocetus. Nice. Question number five. Several times a year, what New York City museum, the largest in the world of its discipline, releases its holdings from its collection for actual commercial use? Oh, interesting. The largest of it, the largest museum in the world of its kind, mm-hmm. uh, releases its holdings for for actual what? commercial use. So it, commercial use. it would be like having a blender museum, and then like a couple days a year, being like, "Y'all can take our blenders, <laughs> rent out all yeah. the blenders." Yeah. It's not like the Museum of Sex or anything. <laughs> <laughs> One day a year we lend out all the dildos. <laughs> Sign quite a waiver on that that's, rental. That's where they come from. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I love this question. Love this question. Yeah, it's, it's a good cool. one. It's a good one. Uh, so there's a museum in New York and it has, it's like of its kind, There's it's bigger than any other one. It has mm-hmm. more in the collection than any other kind of its kind in the world. And then once a year, people can take, basically take the collection out and use it. So people can take the collection, but they, uh, it's it's not given directly to the public. That basically their holdings are operated for kind of like general commercial use. Okay. But they're by a, kind of like a trusted partner of the museum. Is it some? Is it something like computational at all? No, very far okay. from it. These are these are all historical holdings. Okay. Um, I can say I have been one of the people to use um, items in their collection. Is it bones? No, 
That would be know. a good guess for me. Um, so the other hint, which actually won't help Dustin much, is that not bones, but it is a thing that I and my family are very interested in. Trains! I was actually, really? <laughs> is it trains? Is it the it transit trains? museum? I was yes. thinking it's transit museum. It's the transit museum? Is the New York City transit so how museum. Do you, oh, so how do so people, good. you, I don't understand that then. How do people... So well, all all the subway cars are exhibits. Well, so <laughs> well, there's that. That's cool. But some so historical subway cars from the 30s and 40s are kept in the museum. The tracks that lead them in and out of the museum are owned by the MTA, and mm. the MTA has a habit of during the month of December running <gasps> oh, the holiday yeah! train. And so it is a historical Ooh, F train wonderful. that runs along the F line. And it actually serves people, bringing them station to station. It is fully equipped with all the original ads, yep. um, like original political smear That's ads cute. and products. Yeah. And then I after was thinking of something that like back. you actually took out from the museum and used. Yeah. But this is so I, I get That's this. That's clever. And also, awesome. like, it seems cute, but then it's like, oh wait, the MTA is still operating on technology from like way too long ago. <laughs> yeah. That this old and, shit you and, just but, plug and play. It's completely but compatible. Literally not, but literally not just the museum. It's like. Right, just the regular subway. The MTA is a museum. museum. Yeah. It's a transit museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean the the museum itself is in a, a disused station, but that that station is hooked up and is identical to, to the York stations City. on either side. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. The disused station is New York. Uh. Although, and like I can I can really go off on this one, but the MTA is you a won't. conglomeration of oh oh now we got it. <laughs> The, the MTA is three separate independent companies that used to operate subways around the city. Um, the tracks are all the same gauge, but the, the width of the cars are not. So letter mm. lines and number lines can't actually run in the same tracks because one will smash really? the platforms. Yeah. Um, wow. But the technology that controls them has been like still being updated. And so uh, after the there's the that fatal Amtrak crash maybe about eight or ten years ago. Right. I remember um, that, yeah. So everyone was like, we need positive track control to basically say whether or not tracks are clear and the way that the subways are wired with all these different companies just kind of slapping down tracks and like not really worrying about how they integrated it has taken 40 years to even move towards being able to do that so the numbered lines have like how long it's going to be until your train reaches the station because they were a little bit more linear all the mess of lettered lines running out in brooklyn and stuff they're like it's been an engineer's nightmare trying to make a system that can actually tell what train is on what track at what time yeah Question number six. The Vent Haven Museum in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, contains the remains, in air quote, of vaudeville performer Champagne Charlie, along with over 900 others, like Kenny Talk. What sort of museum is it? Uh, a, uh, like a ventriloquist dummy museum? It is. Oh, wow. Nice. Wait, what was it called? Vent Haven? It's called Vent Haven. Like, like ven- a haven for, vent- for ventriloquism? ventriloquism? Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. That's really wow. cool. I was That's thinking, really like, good. it's a it's a place you go to just, like, get it off your chest. <laughs> just, <laughs> just let it scream out. Scream into it a pillow. Venting. It's a haven for venting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it's the only ventriloquism museum in the world. Um, most of I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd think there'd be more, but um, but Vent Haven has a, a collection that was all basically one guy's ventriloquist dummies, and he was like one of the bigger ventriloquist owners of the fifties and sixties. Um, and then he bought some I others. Bet he had a monocle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. see them. I also I also bet he was a dummy. <laughs> 
we know we know his type yeah, yeah. listen if you're <laughs> if you're if you're someone in society who's walking around with a monocle you're probably pulling the strings <laughs> yeah. nice. I, don't, I don't think this is i don't think that's that kind of puppet <laughs> i think this is more of the hand doesn't the matter puppet. doesn't yeah. matter it still works doesn't matter <laughs> um, oh i'm sorry it's a this very, is the, very good very right, good i'm joke. sorry very this is the type of puppet. puppets i forgot this is the different type of puppet where you put your entire forearm up its ass right that's yeah. that's how this one works okay or or into a small <laughs> mechanical operation chamber if I don't know must. how this works. Detail. I need to go to the like, you can use whatever euphemism you want for ass. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah, if you right. if you do want to know, venthaven.org slash behind the scenes has a... Behind <laughs> the scenes. <laughs> Jeez. They have a, fan, a fantastic, again in air quotes, video series about ventriloquism. <laughs> and it's just like the folks who run the museum making YouTube videos. Uh, they have some crazy dolls. They have walkers, which are dolls that can take a number of motorized steps like no thank you no no thank you (laughs) some of the some of the dummies have kind of like um preset things where you can time blinks and nods but they have little switches to make them blink wink uh change their facial expression uh however there's a real movement against bluetooth or remote controlled dummies because that's just not art anymore it has to be Mm. manually operated question number seven this one I'm particularly happy about for you, Dustin, because it actually, I think, fuses two things that you're very interested in. Um, okay. The North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences is already promoting their 2022 exhibit, Dueling Dinosaurs, which I imagine is a combination of dinosaurs and verses. <laughs> we haven't mentioned verses yet. That's true. I was gonna say a lot of our a lot of our listeners probably overlapped with versus at caveat at oh, least yeah. the New York listeners, mm-hmm. so they they may get that joke. But just in case, maybe somebody should explain. Yeah, Dustin, can you can you tell a listener who had never seen? No, versus? I miss versus. We used to have scientists get on stage and we'd have a battle royale of ridiculous topics like sex versus pizza or dogs versus cats. <laughs> or- dinosaurs versus mammals but what i thought you were gonna say was dueling dinosaurs it was like gonna be two dinosaurs with like handguns like pew pew pew, pew, pew. <laughs> like, like a, i don't know why they're i don't know why those guns sounded like lasers but happens <laughs> okay but sorry dueling dinosaurs so the north carolina museum of natural sciences is already promoting their 2022 exhibit dueling dinosaurs in which fully preserved bones of two adult specimens were almost totally recovered after 67 million years. Um, also, excitingly, they're two different but very well-known species. What are the two marquee species of dinosaur that were part of the dig? Admittedly, when you first described the scene of dueling dinos, all that came to my mind were just like two T-Rexes like pointlessly trying to punch each other. So I'm going to say one is a T-Rex. <laughs> that is correct. Yes! yes! One is a T-Rex. Well done. That is, is the other one either a stegosaurus or a triceratops? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> is it a triceratops? That's correct. Hey! Hey! Yeah. So, nice. Uh, no, so they were, uh, I don't know, in some some proximity to one another and fell into, I suppose, a tar pit, something that like immediately mm. preserved them or like ended their lives together. I'm not totally sure about that. Um, they were discovered together and really like, I think 98% of their bones were recovered fully. Wow. Um, so very well-preserved samples. Um, and the museum in North Carolina, the museum of natural sciences is going to unveil them and actually an entire scientific, um, basically workstation that would show what the dig site looked like, what the lab looked like, where they did scans on oh, them cool. and how they figured out basically what these dinosaurs are and, and what they could learn about them. 
in an interactive environment. The other, <laughs> the other thing that I think is really cool is that they do, um, they do trivia every Tuesday, virtual trivia at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Oh, cool! Sick. And it's the it's the only one I've ever seen that does Kahoot based trivia. So, <laughs> one of their curators. What is that? Uh, so Kahoot is the like the, the kids game where you answer questions as quickly as you can and it it tallies your points. They're all multiple choice questions. But yeah, we we use Kahoots a lot in like when I teach with kids because uh, they get they can like take and make quizzes. But yeah, so it's it's a cool thing. It's like a YouTube channel you log on to and you play a Kahoot trivia and I think they send out prizes. And I met the curator at one of Kate Downey's events for online web stuff a few months back. So really cool. really nice guy, good people. Nice. Um, so check it out. I, don't, I know you didn't ask, but his name is Chris Smith. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, see? <laughs> that's, that's, that's service. You don't even tell us the dinosaurs. You tell us the museum curator. <laughs> he wasn't going to talk about no, he's dinosaurs. A... He's, you know, he's holding strong. That's a human. Chris Smith is a human. Yeah. He's, not a he's cleared. Yes. He's okay. And question number eight. This one is uh, This one is a question very close to my heart, and I'll explain why as we get through it. Uh, and I, I have to give credit that I took this question from another trivia podcast, but I'll tell you why. So question eight, the curator of the British Lawnmower Museum has an allergy to what? Grass. It is grass. <laughs> and so this is one of those, you've got to be kidding me kind of facts uh, that I heard on the British show, No Such Thing as a Fish. Um, yeah. And it was, it was in an episode of theirs a couple of years back. Um, and so the fact itself this man who's the curator, I think owner of the British Lawnmower Museum, a museum dedicated entirely to mechanical push lawnmowers of the British Isles. Um, <laughs> fascinating place. Yep. A lot of grass, therefore a lot of lawn mowing to be done daily. Um, he suffers from allergies uh, to the allergens in grass uh, and pollen. So he suffers, but he does it for the love of his hobby. Um, Inspirational. I think it's a hilarious fact. But Noah and M, does, does this fact ring a bell for you? From No Such Thing? Yeah. Ooh, but in, in any other, like, life or purpose? Uh, lawnmower related? No. <laughs> what are we Wait, missing? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so let me take you down a road to <laughs> the fall of- cut to the chase? <laughs> hey. in, in the fall of 2017, Noah, Emily, I, and a few other people met at a happy hour at Sloan Kettering- discussing the idea of starting a podcast and someone said so you just tell each other facts what would you even talk about and we offered i offered the idea well this guy who runs a lawnmower museum is allergic <laughs> to grass and over beers we had a conversation about how crazy that is and how that you could definitely have a podcast just talking about weird facts and someone then asked what would it be called and we said i don't know like fax machine and to me that was like the birth date of fax machine <laughs> Wow. I don't remember that. At no, all. it was at a it was at a Sloan Happy Hour, right? <laughs> I, yeah, yep. yeah. I remember, I remember hanging out. I don't remember that why being. I don't back. remember it. Ah, <laughs> uh, there we go. Because it's Sloan Sloan Kettering Cancer Center Happy Hours. <laughs> we get so drunk <laughs> that we forget the existence of the Lawnmower Museum and cancer. That's how. In fairness, that was the only happy hour I've ever been to where I ordered a gin and tonic and the bartender started pouring the gin and said, say when. And I was like, my friend, this is not how this works. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> just, I mean, just no, you know what? I'm just ashamed to say I do not remember that, Rob. I'm so sorry. So it, it, it holds a special place in my heart. But uh, 
I know this no. is a podcast, so no one can see me, but I am bawling. <laughs> I'm bawling right now. This, the sweetest thing I've ever heard. The purest <laughs> story. But with that, that brings us to the end of our museum quiz. Nice. Love it. Awesome. So that's our show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Dustin, it was wonderful to have you on this episode. Um, is there anything that you're doing that you want people listening to check out? Uh, absolutely. You guys should come party with us every Friday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, a Dino 101. It is, yeah, it is It is grown into be a ridiculous, ridiculous time, and I love it. So, yeah, follow me on uh, – my name is Dustin Groick. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter, and I post about it and dinosaurs probably – more than any grown man should. This has been a Wait ton a of fun. What? Wait a minute. You're interested in dinosaurs? No, remember, I am not. I am not oh, a dinosaur right. person. You can, follow, you can follow him at, at Grustin Doe. Yeah. Uh, on Instagram, I'm not at not dinosaur whisperer. That's, that's, Just in case you're interested, he is at uh, <laughs> dinosaur whisperer on Instagram. Yeah, and Dustin Gerlach on Twitter. Follow me and come to Dino One One. It's gonna be great, I promise. I will be there. Um, I I'm very eager for anyone who listens to me here, so they can see my haphazardly drawn dinosaurs. Um, one of the biggest parts of Dino One One every week is the dinosaur art gallery. Um, Dustin, I mean, surely that that is like one of my favorite parts of you're, your show. You're using the term art and gallery very liberally, but I appreciate it. Okay. I mean, there's some people at yeah, the one one art gallery yeah, who are yeah. incredible artists. Yeah. I and love, meanwhile, I, I'm yeah. just tracing. Yo, that's <laughs> why my, it's great. We bring a community best. of people. We bring a community of people from all over the, uh, I guess, art skill spectrum. We have actual paleo artists there, and also myself, like you, Noah, who would just draw a stick figure and be like, "Look, mom," and she'd be like, "Great, I guess I'll put it on the fridge." <laughs> so, if you liked what you heard today, you can check out our website, faxmachinepodcast.com, and please follow us on social media, where you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at faxmachinepod, and on Facebook at faxmachinepodcast. And if you'd like to follow us individually, I'm Sweatervest SCI, Noah. At Arcs and Sciences. And Emily. At underscore E.M. Costa. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Giberson, and Emily Costa with editing by Noah Giberson. Our theme music is by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Solon. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.